Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. There's Jerry over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Y'all got our red berets on. (laughs) We're trained up. Yep. We're ready to kick some New York City subway butt. I got my nunchucks. You probably had those when you were a kid, huh? No, I never did. Just throwing stars? I had a um, a mom who cared about me. Okay. Who and allowed you to have throwing stars? <laughs> no throwing stars. No well, nine chucks. You can sneak. Uh, I thought you had throwing stars, no? Tommy Roper had the throwing uh, stars. He just <laughs> trained me on them. I didn't actually ever own my own. I got you. I didn't either. But you could hide a throwing star in your bedroom. It's hard to hide those nunchucks unless you do it under the mattress, and you know it's there. That's right. Already. Yeah. <laughs> You're pretty proud of yourself for that one. I was, you? but and then you I got no laugh. <laughs> Thought you might like it. It was good. Um, so obviously, since we're talking nunchucks and Tommy Roper, we're doing an episode, Chuck, on the guardian angels. And let me tell you, from experience, you probably ran into this as well. But researching guardian angels on the internet brings up a lot of crackpot stuff. Yeah, it's very tough to find the stuff I was looking for. But I finally did. I hacked through it, and I got to the actual Guardian Angel stuff. Yeah, and uh, we have a special guest at the end of this episode. Right. We were going to announce that, right? Well, you uh, you put in the title, didn't you? Yeah, but I just want, if people don't read the full title. Okay. If it doesn't display on the your pod player of choice. Okay. Uh, our old friend John Hodgman is here in yeah. the office today. Yeah. Like right now, he's waiting. He's in Jerry's office right now. Oh, is that where you put him? Yeah, we put him in Jerry's office okay. so he could have some alone time. His suitcase is right there. I think it'd be kind of hilarious for us to go through it on the air. It is. I have that exact suitcase. Oh, that's nice. Former sponsor of the show. Oh, yeah. We didn't get suitcases, so. I got one. Not from the show, did you? I got one for End of the World sponsorship. You did? Yeah. Oh, I'm so mad. Yeah. I had to pay real cash money. Did you? I got one for free. It's pink. <laughs> you got the pink one? Yeah. All right, we won't mention the name brand. Okay. You have to go listen to End of the World to hear that. Or they have to advertise again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad because I even asked. I was like, hey, I can't believe can it. I get one of these bags? Yeah. And they're like, no, they're not going to send them to everyone because it's too expensive. And really? I said, Peloton, send us a Peloton. A Peloton. We have Pelotons. These are thousands of dollars. I know. And they advertise <laughs> for like two minutes. Thanks, Peloton. Oh, man. Uh, so anyway, John Hodgman is here in Jerry's office waiting on us to finish recording about the Guardian Angels. Right. Because he has a new book coming out called Medallion Status. Yeah, I just put that together. That's really coincidental that Hodgman showed up to be on the show <laughs> right before his new book comes out. Medallion Status, True Stories from Secret Rooms that it's you can uh, pre-order now. Have you read it? I didn't get a chance to. Did you really read it? I really read it. That's cover impressive. To cover Because we just got him like a few days ago. It's a good read. It's, it's fun to read. It kind of sucks you in. It's great. Can't it's, wait. It's a good read. So anyway, John will be here and... He will talk incessantly about medallion status. <laughs> so we'll just save that. Yeah, we'll let it just kind of peter out at the end. Jerry will like fade right. out. And that's how the episode will end. I bet he'll have something to say about the Guardian Angels too because John lives in New York City. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed in this article that uh, it was, I guess, assumed that everyone knew what it was because it was never even 
really described what the guardian angels is until like the fourth page. Right. That's what I want to say. Like there are probably a significant number of people who think we're going to talk about angels looking over your shoulder. No, we are talking about in New York City and now 130 other cities mm-hmm. and about 13 countries. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> there, There is a group of, uh, they are a group of citizen uh, anti-crime activists. Some would call them vigilantes. Uh, that formed a nonprofit under the leadership of uh, Curtis how do you pronounce that? Sliwa. Sliwa in February 1979. Uh-huh. And if you grew up in the 80s. Oh, and, yeah. In the 70s. Yeah. You saw a lot of guardian angels and this dude in particular on every TV show you could imagine. Yeah. Every every non-fictional scripted TV show. They were maybe like nine-tenths as famous as Mr. T at his peak. They were that famous. And you get the feeling that he loved it. Oh, yeah. Being famous. Well, let me tell you about this guy, because this is one really big um, accusation that's leveled against the guardian angels, that they were just in it for the PR. Right. And they definitely did know how to get PR. Sure. And Curtis Sliwa was a PR magnet from from his birth, basically. It sounds like it. Age six, he makes his first public appearance on Romper Room. Remember Romper Room? Sure. So he's an, uh, a guest on Romper Room. Uh, years later, he was a newsboy who got Newsboy of the Year because <laughs> on his route, he saved six people from a burning building and ended up getting to shake Richard Nixon's hand <laughs> as a result. This guy, Forrest Gump? Okay. It keeps, it, it keeps going. <laughs> All right, what else? Uh, as a younger kid than that, I think, he um, collected single-handedly five and a half tons of recyclable paper to be recycled Years before anybody even knew what the word recycling meant. That's awesome. He organized trash pickups around the place. Cool. Around New York, I should say. He was a legit, real deal um, PR machine who would then also follow through and make like a, an actual impact on the world. Like a real self-starter, even as a kid. Yes, self-starter, also big-time self-promoter. Oh, yeah. And that is a real big part of the Guardian Angels. So much so that, yes, it is a, a, a very widespread accusation that's yeah. leveled against them. But most people who lived in New York in the 70s and 80s would say, so what? You know, these guys, what sure. they're doing actually is is worth all that publicity, so leave them alone. So let's talk about crime. Okay. Because I have a lot of feelings about this whole organization, too. I was flip-flopping all over the place. Really? Yeah, because when you grow up as a kid and you don't know much about them, you're like, oh, yeah, man. Put on those berets, get on that subway, and take it into your own hands. Yeah. You get to be a little older person, you're like, no, 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 don't do that at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's yeah. stay out of the cop's way. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so uh, here's the deal. In the 70s, crime, and we talked about this, I feel like, on something else. Oh, no, no, no. That was on a different podcast. No. We talked about it. We talked about Giuliani cleaning up New York. Yeah, but I was thinking about the a movie crush episode on Escape from New York. No, you were. Which sort of that movie fed into this mm-hmm. uh, hysteria about crime. So did Death Wish. Uh huh. Death Wish two. Yes. Death Wish three. Yeah. Death Wish four. Uh huh. Definitely Death Wish five. <laughs> Have you ever seen Death Wish? Three, I think. Oh, I think I only saw the first one. I went on a little kick not too long ago where I watched all of them. Really? And not the remake, obviously. The, the real Charles Bunsen. I saw the remake, too. I was on that big of a kick. You saw the Bruce Willis one? Yeah. Was it terrible, as It was really bad. Yeah. It was like Eli Roth, you know, of course he's going to make this astoundingly nuts. And he mm-hmm. didn't. He made it real straightforward. Like, I think he, he was he was saying, like, well, this is going to be my entree into mainstream. Why was it so bad? Like, how do you mess up it Death wasn't, Wish? It wasn't bad. Bad's not the right word for it. It was... 
Uh, it was thin. Mm. Thin's a good word. Like it really could have been much bulkier and bigger and and just better. And it just it just wasn't there wasn't enough to it. I uh, think. Okay. And sort Bronson, I mean, vanilla. like he was like a, a a walking cardboard stand-up in a lot of ways, especially yeah. with his acting. <laughs> and his hey, back off, buddy. His stuff was more. <laughs> There was more to it. And I think it was because they went so far beyond the line in those movies, mm-hmm. like attacks on women and like yeah, it was just incredible like violence and and just like the the Death Wish movies are really violent. And like these were a main they were mainstream films that came out. Yeah, but Death Wish three, I think, is it just is totally off the rails. The first two <laughs> yeah. are at least trying to maintain some sort of semblance like a story of reality. about a man and his family being attacked and like right, and he know, fights back, exploring real. Topics. That definitely ties into this mentality of the Guardian Angels. Mm-hmm. Death Wish 3 also does in the way that it describes this New York where it's just chaos. Right. There's no law. There's no order. Yeah. No one's in control. People are shooting rocket launchers at each other. Yeah. Like gangs are just doing whatever they want. And if you're an honest citizen, you have to go murder other people or else <laughs> you're going to be murdered yourself. Well, that was the how they got you to buy into Escape from New York was that – in the year 1997, mm-hmm. which is hysterical to think about now, <laughs> crime got so bad that they shut New York down <laughs> and just made it into a prison. They built a wall around Manhattan Island. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it which was is kind a of prison. a fun idea. Yeah, it really It's a great is. premise. Yeah, I thought that was a good movie, too. So anyway, let's talk about real crime and how bad really was it in major metropolitan areas in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's some stats for you. Ed, uh, the grabster, put this together for us. Woo. And I think some of the stuff is funny that Ed said. <laughs> really? Um, more than 1,600 homicides in New York in 76, uh, more than 1,881. Um, and he said uh, homicide rates vary between 19 and 25 murders per 100,000 residents in the 70s and 80s. Which is, I can't make heads or tails of that. It's real numbers I need. Well, those are... Murders. Then you've got muggings, uh, obviously rape, uh, burglary, vandalism, stuff like that. But I did some figuring. They're on pace in New York City this year for 272 murders. Okay. That's actually kind of high. There were 1,800 in 1981. Yeah. That's really high. Which is five murders a day. But then you think about like, yeah, but, you know, New York's a huge city. There's five boroughs. That's like one murder per borough per day. (laughs) That's to be expected. Like the idea that like you can't walk around without being killed is preposterous. You're probably – the likelihood is that you're never going to be even in the vicinity of a murder, much less the victim of one. Okay. With that kind of population. Um, But (laughs) there were – in 1978, there were nine murders on the subway in 1978, Uh period, on the subway alone. Okay. And in 1979, there were 250 felonies a week on the New York City subway. Right. So so it's a real concern to ride the subway in the 1970s in New York. Like was, a legit fear. It really was, right? So there was a lot of violence. In addition to violence, in addition to violent crime and r- robbery, robbery and muggings and rapes and all, like just violence, right? There was also uh, this sense of lawlessness on the subways in particular where there's graffiti everywhere. Yeah. And like you could get beat up. You could have somebody like shake you down. Just riding on the subway, they were really, they just seemed dangerous too. In addition to actually being kind of dangerous, especially compared to today, they seemed dangerous. So people were freaked out riding on subways. 250 felonies a week on the subway is a lot. Okay. And then on top of that, 
in the 70s, so in 1975, New York apparently came just within a few hours of going bankrupt. Yeah. And they faced some real severe budget cuts, uh-huh. one of which was the transit police. They laid off 1,400 of their 3,600 <laughs> cops, and they cut off patrols from 7 p.m. to, I think, 5 a.m. Yeah, so the the criminals were like, oh, it's just lawless down there. And it really was. Yeah. And so it was in this context that Curtis uh, Sliwa um, basically said, hey, you know what? Somebody should do something about this. The cops aren't doing anything. The city's not doing anything. Somebody needs to do something because people are getting robbed and mugged. And at the very least, people are afraid to ride the subway and we should do something. Yeah, he said, I'm a world champion recycler. (laughs) Yeah, I've met Richard Nixon. (laughs) Listen to me. So should we take a break already? I think we just worked ourselves up into a frothy break. I got to calm down. Let's take a break and we'll talk a little bit about Sliwa's background right after this. All right. Curtis Sliwa, founder of the Guardian Angels, was born in 1954 in Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) He grew up there. Webster's defines Curtis Sliwa. (laughs) He, uh, depending on who you ask, and there there are a lot of like different stories about Sliwa, even within his own story, he has sort of varied things over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, He either dropped out of high school or was expelled for student activism. And he has a long life of activist, uh, of activism. Well, that's what I was talking about. For sure. Yeah. So like he never still is today. Sure. He never lost that, no. which is great. Um, and his dad said, go get a job, you punk. He went to McDonald's in the Bronx, got a job there. <laughs> and he basically said, this McDonald's was nuts. And I don't know if you've ever been to McDonald's late night in New York City like now. I have. It's nuts now. Yeah. I don't. You're not getting murdered. But it is crazy town <laughs> and a McDonald's at 2 in the morning in, in the safest parts of New York City. Sure, yeah. Like Midtown Manhattan. Yep. Yeah. It is kind of fun to go and witness, actually. Yeah. Because it's like... <laughs> it's never normal. No, no. It's definitely not. But and it's it, also, it's not really dangerous <laughs> these days. No, it's not. But it's never normal. Right. I've, I mean, I've only been done this a few times, but it, there's always been an incident or a something going on. All right. I think you just came up with New York's new tourist campaign. It's never normal. Never normal. <laughs> So he describes basically this uh, working there as a nightly battle against gangs. Hmm. And he said that the people that work there kept like nunchucks uh, back in the back in the kitchen, like a like stash next to the fryer. Like Tommy Roper. Yeah. And if something happened, uh, which things always did, we were ready. Right. So apparently one night that actually came in uh, handy when some gang came in and they were – hassling the, the customers. Sliwa's the night manager, so it's up to him to do something. Mm-hmm. And he's the kind of guy who feels like you should do something about that, you know? Especially if you feel like the cops aren't going to do anything, which is an ongoing theme of Sliwa's kind of... Um, Rhetoric? Sh- yes. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so he jumps over the counter and proceeds to get beaten up by this gang. Mm-hmm. Well... For a while. Sure. His uh, co-workers, who had these weapons stashed around the fryer, <laughs> grabbed their weapons and jumped in and beat the gang off. And apparently this experience, according to Sliwa, inspired him to say, let's make this particular McDonald's 
a safe place, uh, a haven from crime and by defending it ourselves and putting the word out that if you come here and try to make trouble, we're going to beat you up with our friar weapons. Yeah, and it's here that we should really, really emphasize that a lot of this is his, uh, from his own words. Mm-hmm. And I'm certainly not calling the man a liar, but he he is definitely a PR guy right. and has a bit of P.T. Barnum to him. Hello. So these stories should be taken a little bit with a grain of salt, I think. Yeah. Um, one big thing that differentiates him in my mind from P.T. Barnum is, number one, no singing. Mm-hmm. Number two, he um, did not view people as suckers or chumps to be taken advantage of. Sure. As a matter of fact, from everything that I've seen about this guy, say what you want about his kind of bravado and grandiosity and potential lawlessness. Yeah. He seems to have been um, very much focused on inspiring people to better themselves in their yeah, community. absolutely. Like that does seem to be like one of his legitimate goals. Yeah, not only making his community safer, but the guardian angels themselves, as we'll see, some of these might have been petty criminals that he's trying to reform. Mm-hmm. So he's done a lot of great things. All right. So uh, he said, all right, we got this McDonald's lockdown. Mm-hmm. Everyone is uh, coming in here and they can eat their um, happy meals. This might have been pre-happy meal even. Yeah. It was right around that time. It would have been the, during the time when they were in those awesome foam containers. I remember those. <laughs> oh, my God. They just make my brain fall out of my ear with nostalgia. Yeah. Remember the McDLT? Sure. Hot side hot, cool side cool? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Extra waste of foam? Oh, yeah. No, I, the, the foam containers were an atrocity, but they, they were beautiful. <laughs> I know what you mean. They had a shimmery mm-hmm. quality to them. And the colors that they chose, everything yeah. was just great. So so wonderfully toxic. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he said, let's extend this out because it's working so well in McDonald's. Right. Let's take it to the streets. Let's take it to the Mo- uh, Muggers Express, the four train mm-hmm. that he had to ride to work with that was – uh, particularly dangerous. Right, because again, remember, there's no cops at night on the subway line. No cops. And so the McDonald's night shift became known as the Magnificent 13. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, let's take you to the streets and let's start recruiting people to do this for real. Right. Uh, but you know what? We need, because he's a PR guy, very smart to do this. Mm-hmm. He's like, we need a uniform. Mm-hmm. Like the Mag- Magnificent 13, we're all in our McDonald's uniforms. Which McDonald's so that is like, can you guys not do that? <laughs> Can you use they other probably, uniforms? Can you not bring nunchucks to work? Right. <laughs> That's sort of in the brochure. Yeah. And so he developed the the iconic red beret, <laughs> red shiny red jacket. Yeah. What's that called? Satin? Like a satin jacket? Yeah. And uh, a white T-shirt with their logo, which is the eye peering out from the winged pyramid. <laughs> I, I could not find why he came up with that design. I bet he hand drew it. Sure. Oh, yeah. Sitting he's around definitely his the type, for sure. Yeah. So um, they went from this Magnificent 13 to the Guardian Angels around that time, and they started patrolling the subways. Um, and we'll talk about some of their ta- tactics and methods in a little bit. But one of the things that first struck Sliwa was that he found that they were not welcomed by the police. The police in the city didn't say, this is great. We need a little help, and these people are stepping up to help, you know, keep their community safer and fight crime. The city did quite the opposite. They said, these guys are nuts. Don't listen to them. Mm -hmm. They need to stop what they're doing, and uh, we're going to harass them, even though, legally speaking, everything they were doing was within their rights. That's right. And one of the reasons the city wasn't down to begin with was there, there was a bit of a history here. 
There was a group in 1968 in the Bronx called the Black Spades, and they uh, had the goal of fighting racism and keeping the neighborhood safe, sort of, sort of like Sliwa. And uh, they eventually morphed into a criminal gang. Right. And the cops in the city saw this happen. They're like, look, the Black Spades were great mm-hmm. until they weren't. Like, you guys are essentially a gang too. Right. That's what they they said. This is the same thing. This is the same thing's going to happen. This is going to be some vigilante gang that turns into an extortion gang and right. they're going to be violent. And they're going to start selling drugs and it's going to be a problem. I also read, uh, as far as the Black Spades are concerned, Africa Mumbada was a Black Spade oh, yeah? member. Yep. And they credit the Black Spades and some other groups for creating hip-hop culture, like those block parties. Yeah. They all came out of, like, these groups getting together and hanging out. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? Can you dig it? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> Did you not know my, my reference? Uh, that was from the Warriors, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But wasn't that the response? Did you not see the extended director's cut? <laughs> <laughs> So here's some of the rules that he developed early on. Right. And this is all Curtis Sliwa's jam. Like he set this thing up. He developed all the rules, mm-hmm. ran it like a, you know, with a tight fist. Brought all the members on. Brought them on. And they were, uh, besides their uniforms that he would hand you upon uh, joining up, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess that was a fun conversation. Oh, what size are you? <laughs> right. What size satin jacket do you wear? Exactly. Do you like to button it all the way up? <laughs> right. <coughs> So you had you have to be at least sixteen, not a serious criminal record, because like we said, right? He kind of liked taking some of these kids that like you know maybe a shoplifter mm-hmm. or a pocket picker, yeah, and uh, reforming them, giving them a second chance to yeah. prove themselves, and that was a big thing that he did. That that the guardian angels did this organization was it said hey you live in an area where uh, you can go sell drugs right you can go rob people all your friends are doing it or you can come over here and actually combat that yeah make your community a safer place to live get See rid this of jacket? this stuff and <laughs> look at this, this is, thing right, yeah <laughs> and you get the free satin jacket but they, they 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 some people were given an option in this neighborhood and some people are in these neighborhoods and some people took that and became guardian angels and actually like took a different path in life because of this guy. This kid right. this Mc, a night manager from a, a Bronx McDonald's. Yeah. Did, like gave these people who joined this option like to to change their lives. That's that's really respectable and commendable. It is. You could be anyone. You could be male or female, you could be any religion. Yeah. You could be any race, any sexual orientation. Yeah, but we sh- you know, we should touch on a little bit the racial stuff. Um it's complicated because he, if you see some interviews, it seems like he's using sort of blatantly racist language. Mm-hmm. He would probably say that he's just a realist and he's just talking real. He's like just from fr- Brooklyn. Yeah, from the streets. From old Brooklyn. Oh, yeah, not new Brooklyn, <laughs> right. old Brooklyn. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you know, I go to Warby Parker, all those places. <laughs> right. <laughs> you go, go to Restoration Hardware, you know, check it out. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> so... uh it's a complicated thing, the way he talks in some of these older interviews. Right. But if you go to where the rubber meets the road, he was not only recruiting, like, black, Latino, or I should say Latinx, um, men, women. Sure. Um, whoever. Who, whoever wanted to be a guardian angel and follow the rules and did, you know, guardian angel stuff could join. And these are the people he hung he hung out with. Yeah. Spent his time with. It wasn't like he was in some ivory tower telling everybody what to do and enjoying bossing around these other people. Right. 
these are people he hung out with. He made lieutenants out of and yeah. chapter heads out of and leaders out of. So, um, like you said, it's complicated, but he proved himself to be fairly above racial politics as far as his actual practices go. Uh, that's right. If you hit the streets on patrol, um, they would go out together, uh, usually 10 people, but you were never out there alone. No, well, that was the thing, because they weren't allowed to carry weapons. Oh, no. So, like, had it just been one of them patrolling, they would have routinely been beaten and put in the hospital. Yeah, so you're, not only are they not allowed to wear weapons, but they pat each other down before they go out on patrol to make sure none of them have weapons right. themselves. And uh, Sliwa would basically act as the dispatcher. He would sit around Mm -hmm. and listen to the scanner, the police scanner, uh, or he would get telephone calls from a payphone, I guess, from another angel saying something's going down. And he would send people out on these patrols like to specifically go to a a crime that had been committed to try and help or – or just go on patrol, like this subway line, super, get on the four train right. and walk up and down those cars or right. go to this neighborhood and patrol this block. So this is how their patrols would work on the subway in particular. It would be 8, 10, 12 of them. Yeah. And they would all show up together. Each one would get into a car. So there would be a, a guardian angel standing at attention. Yeah. Quiet, silent, looking very stern and serious. Uh-huh. Um, not messing around and just projecting that that thing. And that's what Sliwa said is the basis. Like the guardian angels show up and they're in control of the situation. So they're reassuring the people who are worried and they're showing the criminals like don't try anything because there's 10 of us and one of you or even right. two of you, right? And then at every stop, every uh, all the guardian angels would lean out and give some sort of hand signal uh-huh. that the coast was clear. If somebody didn't lean out of their car, all the other angels would converge on that car and help out whoever was in trouble. And that's how they patrolled the subways. And that's how they still do, actually. So imagine this, my friend. Okay. I had this thought while I was researching this stuff. Yeah. Imagine this exact same scenario, but they're wearing tights and capes and masks. <laughs> right. And, like, imagine how quickly they would be laughed at and ridiculed Oh, yeah. And just laughed off the streets. Isn't there a guy in Mexico City who is doing that? Oh, no. There's a documentary. There are quite a few people that do this. And there's a documentary that follows these real-life, quote-unquote, superheroes that are trained up and can do martial arts, but they, like, wear a cape and a mask. Mm -hmm. And it's just—it's funny to think about the perception. They could do the exact same thing. Right. And if they're wearing a Batman mask, (laughs) it's like— What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wonder just if anybody. Thought. I wonder if anyone who used to be a caped crusader is now just a regular <laughs> crusader because that's more legitimate. Maybe, maybe. So uh, here's the thing: um, they're not just standing there at attention to uh, intimidate criminals mm-hmm. and to make sure things are safe. They don't just call in to the police when something happens. Right. They get involved. We talked about martial arts. They are trained up to engage people physically. Encouraged to do so, right? Uh, and and if you listen to our July episode 2015 of on a citizen's arrest, to make and perform a citizen's arrest, which I was trying to think back. I didn't go back and listen to it, but I was trying to think back of what our overall message was. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it, was, it was don't do don't it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. Do not do it. You're going to get yourself in trouble. These guys routinely do that. Yeah, but I think we were just saying like, hey, if you're just an average uh, Joe or Jane on the street, don't do that. Mm-hmm. But if you're a, if you're trained to do so, like a 
guardian angel. Sure. Still don't do it. <laughs> but even still, they, they say like they're not afforded any special rights or privileges. They're no. just citizens following the letter of the law. But they w- they don't just call the cops and say somebody's getting jacked right now or, um, you know, like you said, just stand there sternly. They go beat somebody up. Well, no. They're trained to use minimal force. Okay. So that can still include beating somebody up. They're they're trained to restrain somebody right. and use force, but that's the difference is they're not out there just like delivering a beat down. Okay. Because for retribution. Okay. So originally, from what I read, that is actually how this whole thing started. That they would beat people down. That um uh Sli- Curtis Sliwa and a, his friend Don Chin, yeah. who is a big dude who also worked at the McDonald's with them. Uh-huh. They started out um, with Sliwa riding the subway all dressed up with jewelry and everything. Yeah, they would. he was a plant. All right. Uh-huh. And then um, somebody would come over and try to rob him, and Chin would come out of nowhere and just beat him up. That's entrapment. <laughs> it is. Like, as a matter of fact, there was a quote from the police commissioner at the time. I read this really awesome New Yorker article from 1980 that was written by Nicholas Pileggi, who wrote oh, yeah, sure. Wise Guy, which uh-huh. was the foundation of Goodfellas. One of the greatest movies of all time. Easy. Definitely the greatest gangster movie of all time. Get out of here with that Godfather crap. Okay? <laughs> Give me Goodfellas every day. <laughs> How many people's heads just popped right off of their bodies? I mean, they're both great. Uh, my head's not popped. I, just, yeah. I, know, I know yours isn't, but somebody yeah, out sure. there just like <laughs> just broke through their desk. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he wrote this article, and in it, one of the police commissioners is like, this is... This is awfully close to entrapment. Yeah, sure. Dangerously close, as a matter of fact, what what they were describing. So they stopped doing that and I guess started doing what you were saying, which is following the letter of the law and using minimal force and not entrapping people. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, that's the the idea. And to his credit, he has uh, changed his methods and uh, what he's trained people to do over the years. He's tried to, you know, he's tried to do the right thing, it seems like. Sure. So a lot of people say, too, like, oh, this guy got rich off this thing. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think he leads a pretty modest existence yeah. on the Upper West Side still. He's a little bit Ralph Naderish in that respect. Yeah, and they're a nonprofit. Uh, the members are volunteers. I don't see how he would make money unless he's just, like, selling merch or something. Yeah, there was um, – somebody gave him some money to do a uh, – like, basically for his life story to make a movie about it. So he sure. got, like, ten grand or something back yeah, in the 70s. Yeah, more power to him for and that. apparently he used some of that money to try to sue the people because the movie was so bad. Oh really? That yeah. So what movie is that? I, I don't remember. That. I saw it somewhere, but it would wow. be pretty easy to find. But he um, was it Airwolf? It was Airwolf. <laughs> <laughs> There's this guy making sweet love to the Airwolf helicopter <laughs> in the background. Oh goodness! Uh, it's like that Hanged Man of Oz. You have to like really look for it, but once you see it, you uh-huh. can't unsee it. Anyway, um, he. But yeah, from what I understand, he made no money off of it whatsoever. But, but some people say he didn't care about money. He cares about prestige. Yeah, and a lot of people say, ah, oh, he's just a blowhard, blah, blah, this and that. But right. when you talk to these and inter- read interviews with these, because mm-hmm. uh, I've talked to them, these old former angels. Sure, yeah, I know. You uh, roll with them. They all talk about this family and the fact that he did pull them off the streets. Not all. There are some old former oh, angels sure. that are big-time critics of him and his Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. I didn't mean we'll everybody. We'll get to that. But a lot of people have said that, like, I was going nowhere. He saved me. Right. Gave me a sense of purpose. Yeah. Taught me how to do the right thing in life. And also a lot of New Yorkers, just everyday New Yorkers, were very supportive of the Guardian Angels and what they were doing. I would have felt better on a, that 
number four subway train. Yeah, a lot of them did. Mm-hmm. So that that um, 1980 New Yorker article by Nicholas Pileggi was a hit job. Um, it was just meant to kind of make them look bad and make Ed Koch, who, as we'll see, was not very happy with the Angels. Right. Because he, he was mayor at the time. Um make Ed Koch's point look more reasonable. But um, it, if you read the following edition, every single one of the letters written in response to that article uh-huh. supported the Guardian Angels and basically called out the New Yorker for, for just kind of convoluting things. For being the New Yorker? For basically being the New Yorker, being <laughs> pro-Koch. Well, since you brought him up, he uh, very much dismissed them. I uh, called them vigilantes, the police union, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association. Ed, Ed Koch did. Yeah. Yeah. I said Koch. Right. Yeah. Well, you said him. Some people get lost sometimes. <laughs> I started talking like a New Yorker for all, all, all of a sudden. I got you. Uh, <laughs> the Transit Police Union, they all came out against the Guardian Angels saying, don't do this. Uh, Phil Caruso of the Policeman's Benevolent Association said, Mr. Sliwa is a publicity seeker, and he does a good job of it. When you start putting authority in an undisciplined group, it's not only vigilantism, vigilantism, it reeks of Gestapoism. <laughs> he, not Koch, Sliwa, okay, so not Koch, dictates who will be an angel and where they will work. It's preposterous. No who said, said that last part, Ed Koch? No, 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 that was Phil Caruso. Was he talking about Ed Koch? He's talking about <laughs> Sliwa, <laughs> okay. but it just hit me today. No one says preposterous anywhere. I want to bring that back. Oh, okay. That's a great word. You may just have. I hope so. Preposterous. But a lot of people loved him. Mayor, uh, Governor Cuomo, whether or not it was a political thing or not, kind of came out in support of them here and there. So he had a good quote in that New Yorker article, which, just go read it. What did he say? He basically said, you know, if these were the children, the sons and daughters of white doctors from Long Neck, right. we'd be giving them medals. Yeah, yeah, Instead, yeah. we're just leveling all these accusations of vigilantism against them and, like, totally missing the point that these guys are taking care of their community and taking up the slack where the cops are leaving off. And, frankly, the city's leaving off because they fired so many cops um, that, you know, it's, it seems a little, a little racist to me. He didn't put it that last part in that words, but it was definitely in yeah. there. And this is 1980 that this guy's saying that. So well, it seemed, it seemed a legitimate quote. It, it, if he was taking a shot at Ed Koch, he disguised it well. So there were also supposedly, um, the rank and file cops, um, liked the, the guardian angels. I'm sure it just all depends. It's hard to make a sweeping statement like that. Right. But from what I read, the rank and file were a little more like, yeah, these guys are like trying to restore some sanity to New York. And it was the brass that couldn't really come out and or didn't come out and say that they supported them. Because this is why. The presence, the very presence of the guardian angels. They weren't doing their job. Underline yeah. the problem that New York had. Yep. New York couldn't whitewash it over because the angels were there, which is another big role that they played, kind of this meta role. Yeah. To kind of agitate the city to do more. Yep. Educate, agitate the police force to do more. In addition to providing, you know, a feeling of comfort to people who were riding the subway. And it didn't help that Sliwa would go on TV shows and champion Death Wish and taxi driver as inspirations <laughs> right. for starting this out. Yeah. Taxi driver. Yeah. More so, at least in Death Wish, this guy was like, you know, getting back at people that assaulted his wife and daughter. Yeah. And taxi driver, he's just a sociopath. Sure. Yeah. But, he, I mean, it all worked out for the best in the end. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, um, 
as a result of all of this, Liwa has long um, accused the cops of harassing him in multiple ways. He said he was arrested 76 times while carrying out guardian angel stuff. Yeah. Um, he said that he was kidnapped not once but twice by two different police forces, one in New York, one in D.C. Yeah. Um, in the New York one, I don't think he alleged that he was beaten. But in the D.C. one, he was beaten, burned with a cattle prod, arm in a sling, tied up, thrown into a, a muddy, shallow part of the Potomac. Yeah. They didn't realize it was shallow until he landed, like he thought he was about to be drowned. <laughs> they heard thud, ow, and they're like, uh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't realize it was it was shallow. The cops oh. did. They were messing with him. Who, Ed Koch? <laughs> right. Ed Koch ordered the D.C. cops to throw him in the Potomac, but he said, keep it shallow, keep it muddy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and he's he's been attacked by private citizens who just, like, you know, there's that guardian angel guy. Sure. Let me see if I can get one in on him. Right. As recently as last year in Penn Station, there were these four kids that looked like they were getting in a fight, and one of them, like, dropped drugs and then picked them up, and he kind of went over and, like, hey, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, look who it is. Right. They literally said the words, Newark in the house. Oh, yeah? I guess they were from Newark. Huh. And one of them. Sucker punches him in the face and knocks out his front tooth. Front tooth, man. And That's he, expensive uh, to get back. Well, he said he couldn't afford to get it repaired. That's how little money he has. Very Ralph Naderish. He said insurance won't cover it. They're calling it cosmetic. It's so funny. This is in the article even. <laughs> he said they're calling it cosmetic, but... He said, my nerve is exposed. It's very painful. I could totally, that's exactly, that's a Curtis Lewa quote if I've ever heard one. It's pretty funny. Followed I mean, up by, well, for now, I've just kind of folded up some paper towel to stand in. With the pictures of him, like, smiling big, missing that front tooth. Nice. So I think he took, as always, the opportunity to be like, hey, I'm still out there. I'm still getting punched. Right. Look at me. Yeah. And also, my insurance company is really a bunch of deadbeats. <laughs> So there was another incident where there was a guardian named Frank Melvin. Oh, this is a big one. Heard about this incident going on. On the police scanner. Yeah. From Meg Koch. Rushed to the scene. And uh, as he's rushing to the scene, this is the the cop's version. There's someone on the roof, a cop on the roof, cop on the ground. And they say this guy comes rushing up. I guess they didn't see his red beret and red satin jacket. Uh, Allegedly. And uh, ordered him to halt. He didn't halt. The cop on the roof shot and killed him, a mm-hmm. uh, 26-year-old father of three. Sliwa says, this is not what, this is a big cover-up. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened at all. He said a sergeant on the street stopped him dead in his tracks. He opened his jacket and said, you know, I've got no weapon. There's no reason to shoot. Mm-hmm. And they shot him anyway. And as he was dying on the ground, they prevented other angels from giving him CPR, mm-hmm. which is a very specific claim. It is pretty specific, yeah. To make. So we held a press conference alleging all this stuff, yeah. like immediately afterwards. He's very agitated, very upset. Um, and this is a, I guess you could say this is the low point of police-guardian angels relations. Yeah, I would say so. The, a guardian angel has been shot and killed by the police. Um, but from that point on, I think that was in, that was 1980, the yeah. beginning of, or the end of 1980. From that point on, it just started to change and improve, and all of a sudden, the cops kind of got on the, the guardian angel side. Should we take a final break? Yes. All right. A final break that sounds so cryptic. We're going to come back and talk about uh, the great 80s right after this. S-Y-S-K. 
Okay, Chuck, we're talking about the Grady's. The Grady's are happening. I got Jerry over there. The guardian angel. She's listening for once because Hodgman's coming in. So miso she's... soup coming out of her nose. <laughs> so the guardian angels are uh, at their peak. Uh, supposedly topped a thousand members, and this is from Curtis Lewa's uh, recollection. In from, 1981, right? For his numbers, yeah. Yeah. They were getting good publicity, so much so that uh, these budget cuts are going on and the crime rate's still sky high. Mayor Ed Koch has no recourse but to lukewarmly embrace them publicly. <laughs> right. And that's the best way to describe that, I think. Right. Was like, eh, okay. They're, he described them as chicken soup. Have they hurt? No. <laughs> Who said that? Ed, Ed Koch, okay. mayor of New York City gotcha. at this time. So he did. So this is a huge turnaround from these guys are vigilantes and they need to stop what they're doing. So this yeah. is a big deal. And it actually, I don't know how much it had to do with the real rise of the Guardian Angels, but they um, they definitely uh, saw their, their membership swell, like you said, mm-hmm. their patrols. It was the height of the Guardian Angels were the early – Early to right in the mid '80s. Oh yeah, when we were kids, mm-hmm. and it was just all over the place. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Did they have a Saturday morning cartoon or something? Because some part of my brain is like, a, dude, they may have been it. on like Scooby Doo or something. Okay, when they did those years where they had all those weird guests. Yeah, like Jerry, Jerry the, Lewis, <laughs> the Three Stooges, and Jerry Lewis and uh, Jerry Reed. Oh, is he on? Oh, he was on a bunch of times. Really, Smokey. Yeah, he would sing Pretty Mary's Sunlight or Sunshine. Oh, man. To, so they could find him through the ductwork or something. It was bizarre. <laughs> but he was on a few times. Remember Batman and Robin, the campy version we're on? Yeah. Harlem Glo- Globetrotters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don Knotts. Don Knotts, of course. I could do this all day. <laughs> the Three Stooges, right? Oh, yeah. With Curly Joe. Oh, okay. They had their own cartoon for a little while, and I suspect that that's why they were on Scooby-Doo is to kind of launch the cartoon version of themselves. I definitely have a memory of seeing a cartooned guardian angel. I do, too. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I'm agreeing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just just me, Mayor Ed Koch, agreeing with you. Okay, good. Podcaster Josh Clark. Thank you. So they developed a system. They were like, all right, if we're all going to work together— Let's get these guys an, an ID card at least. Not a badge. Right. He called it a badge. Sliwa did. Sure. But it wasn't a badge. Okay. It was a it was an ID card that was official and they, a sort of a detente and said, hey, let's all quit giving each other a hard time. We're all after the same thing here. Um, and he said, this will allow me to open up franchises. Did you say the badge was issued by the cops, though? I don't think it was issued by the cops, but I think it was agreed upon that we'll have an official designation and an official ID card okay. that you recognize. But part of getting that ID card was submitting as a guardian angel applicant to a police background check. That's right. So there was this I think that was part shroud of, the, of legitimacy yeah, that yeah. was that came from the police force. But whether the police force wanted to be friends with the guardian angels or not, Sliwa made a very um, a very purposeful decision that the guardian angels would have nothing to do with the cops. Right. And he said later on in an interview, the reason why is because it would delegitimize the guardian angels in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. 
that these people would be seen as basically narcs or snitches or, you know, cops um, in neighborhoods where they didn't like cops very much. But since the guardian angels were separate and had nothing to do with the cops, they had their own legitimacy that would have just been completely ripped away had they been associated with the cops. I get that. Yeah. So they started popping up all over the country, uh, Sacramento, L.A., Buffalo, Cleveland, uh, He's he, like Tyler Durden at this point. He sort of was, yeah. but he would come in and uh, he would not bring, maybe he would bring some people to train them up momentarily, but then they would go back home. And the idea was that they would run it themselves under his direction. Yeah. And so like the city officials who heard the guardian angels were coming town were worried that a bunch of New Yorkers These were New moving Yorkers. here to basically patrol this other yeah. city's streets. And it was never that. It was like you were saying, they'd train local leadership. Sure. Um, Just like a Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, yes. Exactly like that, uh, run by Mayor Koch. Right. So I saw somewhere, Chuck, that Cleveland actually invited the Guardian Angels to open a chapter there in 1981. Oh, really? Yeah. So it wasn't all like, you know, get out of here. We're going to kidnap you and throw you in the Potomac. Some cities were like, we need this, actually. Come, yeah. Come breathe some life back into our downtown or whatever. Well, I remember in 1981 when the Atlanta child murders were, uh, were happening, mm-hmm. they came to Atlanta uh, to help out here. And I remember very much that being on TV. Oh, uh, yeah. You know the that whole investigation by the FBI or the GBI into the KKK as the suspects in the Atlanta child murders? Yeah, yeah. The media found out about that because Spin Magazine reported on it. Spin Magazine heard about it from the Guardian Angels who oh. had come to Atlanta. Wow. So they technically broke that, that story. Are you watching uh, Mindhunter? No. Yeah. That's part of the new season. Is it? Yeah. Cool. It's just medium good. That's my review. That's why I'm, yeah, I don't want medium good. Yeah, I get you. When's the last time you, you want to watch Death Wish 1 through 5 great was and on. the remake? I'm just punishing myself until <laughs> until something really great comes along. Sure, I hear you. That and Rift Tracks. I just watched Death Wish <laughs> oh, and man. Rift Tracks. So let's talk about vigilanteism for a sec and uh, Bernie Getz. Uh, I think we should do a whole episode on the Bernie Getz incident. I, I was thinking the same thing. Um, so should we not talk about it at all? No. Really? No, no, we can't. I'm just All right. Kidding. So the brief version is: is Bernard Getz, the subway shooter, uh, was on a subway one night. These four uh, African American youths, 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 approached him, and one of them said, "Hey, give me five dollars." That, that was the extent of it, right? Yeah, no weapons. I mean, there's a lot of different versions of the story that came out in court, mm-hmm. but uh, apparently did not brandish any weapons. Mm-hmm. Later on, he said, like, one of them opened their coat, and I thought he had a weapon. Mm-hmm. But he very quickly, and he even described it as a quick draw, mm-hmm. and he had it all planned out. He said he had a sequence of shots in his mind, ready to go, mm-hmm. left to right, one shot each. And he shot these four kids, and it was a very complex case. We shot him without warning. Yeah, it was a quick draw. But he didn't say, like, stand back or don't come near. He just quick draw and started shooting. Yep. Quick drew. He quick drew and shot. Um, he said that he was in physical danger and that one of them might have had a weapon, everyone else, or not everyone else. It was for the courts to decide, but that he was not in f- immediate physical danger. Um, and, the, and then there's this whole disputed fact about whether or not he went up to one of them uh, that was slumped down kind of on a seat, mm-hmm. walked up to him and said, you seem okay. Here's another. Bam. Oh, yeah. Later on, he said, oh, no, I probably just thought that. I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> And then there's dispute about whether or not that shot even landed uh, and, like, if he was actually shot a second time. Uh, so I really need to dig into this if we're going to do it for real. Well, yeah. 
But the long and short of it is there was a vigilante shooting on the subway. Half of New Yorkers were like, good for you, Bernie Getz. Mm -hmm. And half of New York said, no, don't pull pull out a gun and start shooting people. Right. And the guardian angel said, oh, we're in the Bernie Getz camp. That's right. So much so that that in 1985, on the one-year anniversary of that shooting, they held a uh, ceremony celebrating Bernie Getz. In the subway where the shooting took place. That's right, in that station. Which is, you, you just don't celebrate people being shot, but they really cast their lot behind Bernie Getz, and it really damaged their credibility as upholders of you know law and order yeah. in the minds of a lot of everyday New Yorkers. Yes, another thing that damaged the uh, reputation of the Guardians is when Sliwa was kind of forced to admit uh, later that, uh, you know, early on we faked some of these things Man, entirely. Talk about damaging your credibility. Yeah. There was one one of the first promotions that they may have even still been the Magnificent 13 was them returning a wallet uh, that had $300 in it to like a parish priest or something like that. Oh, wow. And um, they drummed it up. They cooked the whole thing up. They told the media about it and, and got a lot of press, a lot of early press. And Sliwa says he, he regrets doing it, but also it really helped. And that either he said it or one of the early founders, co-founders said, had we not done this, the organization probably never would have taken off. Yeah, some of the other things supposedly uh, faked. Uh, one of them doused themselves in gasoline and said that, you know, a criminal had done this. Yeah, because there had been another crime where somebody had doused or set a ticket booth operator on fire in their ticket booth at the oh, subway. And so they were basically capitalizing on that, like it was right. going to happen again, and they stopped it. Another one where you see these angels, they're all bruised up and bleeding. Uh, turns out that one of them had, like, fallen down the steps and gotten bruised. The other one uh, picked off a scab <laughs> and made it bleed again. Yeah. <laughs> so gross. Yeah. So this did not so help gr- their reputation. Uh, but, you know, he's acknowledged being a big PR guy. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. If you read those those replies in the, to that New Yorker article, they're like, basically, all you've done is demonstrate that they're PR hounds, but also that they're actually good at what they're doing. So, yeah. I, you know, that's fine. That is a real a real dent in their legitimacy for sure that they faked it. Because then you're like, how many did they fake? Which is in dispute too. Yeah. Um, what is not as in dispute that we should cover quickly is uh, on June 19th, 1992, Sliwa was kidnapped and shot after entering a, a fake taxi or I guess a stolen taxi. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was uh, supposedly at the hands of John Gotti Jr. Yeah. Because Sliwa went on the radio show. I think he still has a show. Yeah. And 77 WABC. Yeah. Talking about, uh, you know, Gotti's just a drug dealer. He's a serial killer. And John Gotti Jr. didn't like that and was um, charged with this crime, uh, but got off three different times, three different trials. Yeah. Including one in, uh, when was the most recent one? 2005. Oh, yeah. And all the juries um, said, uh, I'm not going to. Yeah. (laughs) No, all three juries were unable to agree to convict him of these charges. For that reason. (laughs) No, you never know. I'm not, you know. Remember, they used to call John Gotti Sr. the Teflon Don. Yeah. We should do one on him, too. Nothing sticks. The 80s are a goldmine for everything. For episodes, okay? What a decade. So the Guardian Angel's still around. They yeah. came back again in 2018, although Curtis Lewa during publicity said, we didn't go anywhere. We've been doing patrols every night, which may or may not be true, but you could still find them if you look hard enough or if you go watch videos 
from 2018. That's right. Uh, if you want to know more about the Guardian Angels, well, go meet one. They'll tell you all about it. But in the meantime, it's time for it's time for our friend John Hodgman. Did you see that? Signed uh, on the back of the uh, iMac. You'd appreciate that. Mike from uh, BoJack Horseman. I was wondering if that was a BoJack. I have not watched that show. I haven't either. Don't tell Paula Tompkins. I won't. I have not seen an episode. You should totally sign the Mac, though. Yeah, I'd I'd love to. That would be ironic. Get it? For for the elderly. (laughs) Sure. Is that a Nordiques hat you're wearing? This is not a Nordiques hat. Is that New Hampshire? I, I, no. I have yet to look, uh, to look it up online, but I, I wondered. I was like, that's not so bad. I, You're referring, <laughs> of course, to the chapter of my new book, Medallion Status, entitled Extinct Hockey, about the only sport that I like being. I was. Following the logos of extinct hockey teams. <laughs> Northampton. Nope. Yeah, it's, you'll never get it. North it's Hamish. Not, is it an N and an H? It It is. Okay. Yeah, I don't have any other guesses. Let's then. try all the H towns with North, and no. then go through and start over <laughs> it's with not New. A ta- it's not a. It's not a town. Okay, mm. is it a ville? So something hockey. It's not. It's not, and it's not hockey. Ugh. That's the trick of it. Yeah. I'm leaving. Is That's that a Cubs trick. hat? <laughs> it, there is a guy who would come to my events once I started talking about my fascination with the Hartford Whalers logo, best logo yeah. in sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty great, and the. Quebec Nordiques logo, worst logo in sports, mm-hmm. like an actively aggressively bad design <laughs> choice. Right, like it slams the door in your face, and you're like, "I wasn't even going to knock. Why are you? <laughs> why are you doing this to me?" Yeah, um, I'm sorry. I'm listening. I just have to find. You need to look it up. You need I to know it. The, the Quebec Nordiques. Oh sure. Well, hockey. Yeah. Now, what would you say that is? Well, I mean, I get the the hockey stick and puck part, but I don't know what the other well, part is. Well, first of all, is. the hockey stick. So it so so it 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 is supposed to be a blood red igloo bisected by a hockey uh, stick that does not come through with a very large puck. Hmm? But and the and the angle at which the hockey stick bisects the igloo, uh-huh. it's supposed to sort of suggest an N for Nordiques. I had always but most people consider it to be a deformed elephant. Sure, yes. I was going to say I'd always taken it as like a, I've seen this before. I just didn't realize what it was. I thought it was some sort yeah. of Republican logo. Yeah, it looks because it is it red, like white, that. and blue. Yeah, yes. It the is. only thing that you can't really account for is the puck, which really is just a circle. It is. It's um. It's uh, it's it's a confusing piece of design. Yeah. And there was a guy who would come to my shows uh, in New York and and still does named Gene Monteroselli. But for a long time, I didn't know his last name, so I just referred to him as Mysterious Gene because Man, at the good. end of every show, yeah, you're looking at the Hartford Whalers logo. So good. So smooth. <laughs> so, so, so. I mean, it, the, the, beauty, the beauty of the Hartford Whalers logo, of course, is not only does it have that beautiful whale's tail and the W, but the two together form a negative space H for Hartford. All of this has gone on ad nauseum in the book, <laughs> by the way. And yeah, now this is what you can read in medallion status. You never know. What? No, no, he'd never noticed. I, I got to keep things He's, going here. So right now, John is pointing oh, at yeah. Chuck's phone. Oh yeah, son everybody. of a gun. Yeah, isn't that amazing? There's this trick that John I mean, likes really to do. It's really great design that you describe in the book, where you show people that. Right. And you claim that some people have gasped when you've pointed. Everybody sees just the, happened. the W. I don't yeah. know if I picked up on a gasp, but yeah, Chuck was impressed. That's like the arrow in uh, FedEx. In FedEx, uh, that's yeah. the, the negative space arrow in FedEx. Right. You, you know that one, of course. Sure. Right. Yeah. And you also had a new wave band in the '80s called Negative Space. 
I did? In the early 80s, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> oh, I did as a child? I thought you did. Yeah. No? Was that someone well, else? I was on tour with the Thompson Twins. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Boston recently uh, with another another uh, monster of podcaster, Who? Nick Weiger, who's one half of the Doughboys. Uh-huh. Oh, sure. If you don't know those guys, they feel the feel the breath, feel their hot breath on your necks. They're coming for you. Sure, Doughboys yeah. are coming. Everybody knows. Nick Weiger and I were walking through Boston, my hometown-ish. I'm from mm-hmm. Brookline. And I was like, and there is the Boston Common. They used to have co- concerts on the Common. Uh-huh. And I said, that's where I saw my first concert. He said, oh, wow, what was it? I said, well, it was the Thompson Twins. And he goes, who are they? Oh, yeah. Who are they? And I just silently walked into traffic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was fine. My first was Hall & Oates. Hall & Oates, with, right. With Till Tuesday opening. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Amy Mann. Yeah, friend Amy of, Mann. Uh, our friend Amy Mann. I would say friend friend of all. Friend of all Friend humanity. of all people. My uh, experience was Cheap Trick, first show. Yeah. And my experience with Amy Mann is I've met her a couple of times briefly as she's fleeing the room because more than five people have showed up at the party. <laughs> Amy Mann is very social, and she goes on the Jonathan Colton cruise. Which Really? Yeah, neither oh, okay. of you have been on, right? You should come. No, I've never I been invited. Should, really? No, we haven't. Well, we can buy tickets, I think is what John's saying. No, I think we Well, I'm, I'm selling tickets. That's why I'm here. <laughs> in the I form have, of giant on, boxes me, of peanut yeah, m Let me get my cigar box All and right. uh, I'll write out some, write out some uh, tickets for you. So, so, oh, anyway, so anyway, Mysterious Gene would show up. Oh, okay. To my shows and at the foot of the stage after every show, yeah. he would be standing there. And I considered him Mysterious Gene because, A, I hadn't bothered to learn his last name. Right. And, B, he was acting mysteriously. He would just lurk at the foot of the stage mm-hmm. and bestow upon me mm-hmm. a new extinct hockey hat that he had found somewhere. Each Teams, time? Yeah, like m- a multiple times. So, mm. like, the Vancouver Millionaires oh, wow. who were who, who were the became the Vancouver Canucks. Canucks. Oh, okay. Uh, the the Montreal Wanderers, who mm-hmm. were the English language community team, hockey team in Montreal, mm-hmm. you know, because the Canadians were the are, and are the French. Now they're the only hockey team. This is, why am I talking about sports? Because we talk <laughs> right. about it. Because you know, you've traipsed out of extinct hockey and into like real hockey. Yeah, I know. It's I've be un- careful. I've, un- you're, you're I've accidentally become now. infected with a certain <laughs> amount of actual sports knowledge. Right. You're down right. with big hockey. Well, that's the beauty of like as a. As a non, I never under, I never got into sports because sports, as I discuss in the book, mm-hmm. sports tends to be about um, winning. It seems like winning is the point mm-hmm. of the sports. Yeah, and that, and I am only I I am only ever been a fan of an underdog. Do you right. know, like yeah. And so I could get with growing up in Boston. I I could talk. I would be fine with the Red Sox because they were they losers. Were terrible. They were then, losers yeah. for so long, and they were in this constant battle against. The quintessential bullies of sports, the Yankees, and then right. they would they would fail. When are you talking about? Because when I was growing up, the Red Sox were like Wade Boggs and Roger Clemens, and they were not losers. No, they weren't losers, but they wouldn't make. There was the yeah, World Series. They would, they would always out. lose yeah. to yeah. New York, but yeah, they yeah, beat yeah. everybody else. Right? And they wouldn't always lose team, to New York right? either. It was just it was always a there was always a, the the curse, right? The, cur- okay. the Bill yeah. Buckner, right, right, yeah, like the, oh yeah, that was probably the that was the 1988 World Series between the New York. Uh, between the Mets and uh, right, the Red yeah, Sox. the Miracle Mets. But you're talking. Why are we talking about this? I thought the Miracle Mets was '86. It could be. I can't. Yeah, remember. I think it's '86. But you're talking about the curse, which is the fact that the Boston Red Sox traded away Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. Yeah, that's a way older curse. Forever cursed. Yeah, and they Bill were Buckner. Right, and they were cursed, and they were, and they were never. They couldn't win. They couldn't win the World Series, and they couldn't 
They didn't go to the World Series for a long time. And when they did, <laughs> the, the ball went right through Bill Buckner's legs. That's right. Um, and that I, you know, I could get behind that because they were these consistent underdogs. When they won the World Series, mm-hmm. I was like, "You guys are dead to me. Sure. I can't, I can't handle that. I can't handle the, that." So but hockey is always underdog, no matter what, even at the highest level, right? Because it's the least, it's the minorest of the major league sports. Yeah, and everyone, everyone who is a hockey fan in the United States, you know, is some is to some degree a man or woman without a country, and that country is Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they just don't have – It's you know, their teams are constantly failing and moving and renaming. <laughs> I mean, they have hockey in just, Phoenix. Yeah. In Las Vegas. Yeah. It's but, ridiculous. But, you, well, you make the point in the book that, like, even in a big city, it's still like the little brother to the, you know, baseball yeah. or basketball or football or something. Right. Like and hockey fans are – they're true – I mean, they're true fans, but I, I, I don't want to give away too much, but I, I do – after my fascination with the extinct hockey mm. takes root, I talk in the book about I wonder whether I would like actual hockey. Yeah. <laughs> and I go to an actual hockey game. And for the most part, I found it to be awesome yeah. and charming. It's nice that, that cool air is just so bizarre to be in a building and yeah. be yeah. cold like cold, that. Yeah. And it's a certain kind of cold. It feels good. Yeah. Hockey is a lot of fun live, though. It's, it's, yeah. one, it's the one sport that seeing it live really uh-huh. – like, even if you're not a fan, you could probably enjoy a three-hour experience. Yeah. Well, what hockeyists are amazing. You know, ice skating alone mm-hmm. is impossible enough, you know, just to prevent yourself from falling down all that time. Yeah. Never mind doing it backwards and then someone hands you a stick and says, now hit that piece of hard rubber into that tiny I did area. that for a little while. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, can't, I can't imagine that. It's, it's, so, it's so challenging that you – you know, the tension of the hockey game is you're waiting for this almost impossible event of getting a goal. It's like yeah. wa- waiting to see a quantum event. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all this built-up tension and there's massive reliefs when it happens. Yeah. But it happens so quickly. Like usually you look away for a second. Right. And uh, and, and then you miss it. But, uh, you know, I, I, enjo- I enjoyed the, the, the hockey itself was very charming because it was a Pittsburgh Penguins game for whatever reason. Against uh, the Tampa Tampa lightning bad guys, yeah, lightning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tampa Bay bad guys. I was a, I was a Penguins right person because Ron France Ron Francis went from the went from the Whalers to play for the Penguins, right. so there was a Whalers <laughs> legacy there. Yeah, and I you said people my, wear Whaler stuff at the Penguins. Well, games people, no, too, no, right? no, not necessarily. I, I was, you just made that up. In well, the no, 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 no. People are really into Whalers merchandise now. Mm-hmm. I think largely because of my personal sure. lobbying for the amazing. The amazing sports design, uh, uh, the logo by Peter Good in West Hartford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I went to this game, I called a, a hockey blogger that I know, uh, Greg Wisniewski, and uh, of course he's a hockey <laughs> blogger. <laughs> and I was like, I'm thinking of wearing my ha- my Whalers hat to this mm-hmm. hockey game, but I don't, <laughs> I don't want anyone to hit me. <laughs> like, I right? I don't. Want, I figure it's fine, but mm-hmm. I just want to double check that there are no deep rivalries or something that I'm going to be, you know, mm-hmm. tri- I, triggering among the... Uh, was very wise. And he said it was it was probably... People have a lot of fondness for the Whalers and that was fine. But I I, I did... I decided not to. I, I bought a Penguins hat and I wore the Penguins hat. Right. And the thing about extinct hockey that is, that is so... Ma- that is different from... The thing about real hockey, actual hockey that's different from extinct hockey is extinct hockey, the outcome is known. They they lost, <laughs> like, right? Right. You know what I mean. You just feel sad. You yeah. think about it, right? right? And actual hockey is out. It's unfolding in front of you. You don't know the outcome, right? 
And as you know, I cannot tolerate ambiguity. I dislike it very much. And I came down to sudden death, and I got really, really, really nervous. Mm-hmm. And Greg had, Greg had told me that – Greg had told me that, you know, when he would get nervous growing up watching hockey, he would drink pink lemonade mm-hmm. as, a, as a young person. Mm-hmm. And that would, that would help the team win. Mm-hmm. And I was offended by that because I don't love sports, but I have an appreciation for athletes. That mm-hmm. what they're doing is the, 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 pro, the product of hard work and training and, and, and physics and physical space. Right. And you probably like, don't believe in superstition either. Yeah. I believe in science. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an insult to athletes for Greg to think he can control their bodies with his mind <laughs> and beverage. Was he a kid? He was a kid at the time. Okay. But, you know. <laughs> oh, there's plenty of adults. There's plenty of superstitions. Kind of yeah, superstition, right. Yeah. And, of course, in that moment in sudden death, after, you know, three periods and a couple of overtime or whatever, however it was, it had been a lot of hockey. Mm-hmm. I was, like, tired and cold. And I loved the hockey, but I was ready for hockey to be over. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I, but I wanted my, my team to win, the Penguins. Let's go Pens. And in that moment of sudden death, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put on my heart for Wheeler's hat. <laughs> Because it's going to help them win. <laughs> like science was abandoned. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was uh, – I was not merely superstitious. I was convinced that my my putting on a different hat mm-hmm. was going to affect the outcome mm-hmm. of what was happening on the ice. And when you think about it, it makes sense. You know, whalers, penguins, they're both marine animals. They're going to work for each other. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and of course I put on the whaler's hat. Within a seven seconds, penguins lose. <laughs> really? <laughs> Penguins lose, and just like the whole, the whole arena went dark. It felt like, yeah. And only I knew that I had caused it to happen. Did you keep it to yourself? Of course, I did not tell anyone. I'm sorry, everybody. I yeah, that, I forced the outcome. <laughs> I just the Penguins did not win. Was it a playoff game or anything, or just it was a playoff game? Oh wow! But I think that that year, I mean, I don't, I don't think they were eliminated. Okay, it was, it was fine. They went, they went on to do some more good hockey. So what's the new, the NH on your hat? Oh, so Gene would bring. <laughs> Right, mysterious Gene would mysteriously, like, would mysteriously um, appear. He would apparate Harry Potter style at the uh-huh. foot of the stage with a new hat, and the Lorem Ipsum. Right, and then oh, there is one the Brooklyn Americans, which is a wait, 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 no, just keep keep staying with mysterious Gene. No, that, that was another hat that he gave me. <laughs> okay, all it was right. a hockey team that played for one season, and then he he started running out of hockey teams, uh-huh. and he gave me this hat, which is this really cool hat. It is not a hockey hat, however, oh. and it is an existing sports team, but it is it is it is a sports team in Japan. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Is it a baseball team? It is a baseball team, uh, and it is. Do you want to? I have no idea. I've never seen it before. Baseball teams in Japan are often organized around corporations. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I don't know whether the corporations form the teams or sponsor the teams, but this is a long-standing. Japanese baseball team, like the Xerox Tigers or something, something like uh-huh. the, the equivalent. Yeah, this is the the the, the company. The NH is Nippon Ham. Okay, Ham. I've, I've heard ham. of that. Wow. Yeah, and these are the Nippon Ham Fighters. <laughs> wow. So it's the Nippon Ham Fighters. That's a great, this is a great, great hat. Great hat. Yeah. So I mean, the logo out. doesn't really get that across that they're ham or fighters. No, or no, even Japanese. But it's pretty classy. The story it's a, behind it's pretty great. It's a pretty good. It's a pretty good looking logo, and anyone can look it up. It's the old fashioned one. If you're listening, hmm. it's no Hartford Whalers logo. No, but that I'll tell you something that you know. I was um, I, I was uh, I was in Boston, uh-huh. um, doing doing another podcast, the Doughboys podcast. Sorry. 
<laughs> who are breathing down our necks. Yeah, they're coming for you. Dumb yeah. boys are coming for In all no of us. small part because you're aiding them, apparently. No, I'm, no, I'm just, I'm, what, what is it when you are on the um, highway? And you drive real, real close to the back of a truck. Tailgate, backdrafting, backdrafting, oh, right? Yeah, that's how you you get mileage, right? Because supposedly, yeah, you're not you're, you're reducing wind shear against you. You're you're right. you're riding in their wake. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm the, doing. The NASCAR they do that. That's what I'm too. doing with you guys. That's what I'm doing. The Doughboys. It's a I'm way to like, go. You're drafting. I'm just, gra- I'm just grabbing on and hanging on. I hope <laughs> you guys will bring me. But you don't need any you. help. You have your own podcast, Judge John I Hodgman. It's a podcast cult with, classic. It's, I think it's bigger cult. than ever too. It's doing very well. Yeah. I'm amazed. And, you know, we've been doing it not quite as long as you guys have been doing. But it's been on for a have. long time. Yeah. Nine, and I, nine I know years. people who point to judgments that you've made to settle other disputes. Like, no, Hodgman ruled that a hot dog's not a sandwich. Hot dog is not a sandwich. And Do people you agree like or cite disagree? that. Uh, it's okay. I'm not going to get in. Yeah. I mean, it, it is not here. a sandwich at all. Thank you. I, was I just, don't understand yeah. how that's true. Oh, you think it's a sandwich? I, I It's not that I think it's a sandwich. It's more I realize I'm inviting Hodgman to explain. And I'm refusing. But I don't, <laughs> I don't see times. how it has – how the. I, I just think I have to go listen to that episode because I'm more aware of the cultural aspect of your ruling than I am with the actual it, episode. It actually it wasn't, an, it wasn't an episode. I, I also write a little columnette in the New York Times magazine. Yeah called Judge John Hodgman. No one who reads the magazine knows that there is a podcast called Uh Judge John Hodgman. I do. Thank you, Josh. You are, of course, the exception. Sure. Proves every rule. (laughs) And no one, no one who listens to the podcast ever reads the New York Times magazine. And I do. Oh, once again, (laughs) exception, rule. Right. But um, someone had written in uh, that he and his buddy were having a photo where a hot dog was a sandwich. I had to think about it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Because I appreciate why you would sort of say, well, of course it is. But there is something weird and different about it that makes the question sticky, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like – and I was trying to think, you know, what would be the disqualifying factor? Mm -hmm. What would be the trait? Because there are many traits that hot dogs and a typical sandwich, you know, your classic ham sandwich with Nippon ham, Mm -hmm. go fighters. Yeah. Uh, have in common in terms of bread and 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 filling proportion and style and whatever sure. condiments condiments yeah right? especially yeah. like Chicago style yeah. it's as sandwichy as a hot dog yeah. yeah and it's obviously shaped it's obviously shaped different than a classic Nippon ham sandwich mm-hmm. right like straight up square mm-hmm. cut and triangle with bread that's not connected right right you know I think that's a big one yeah and so is that the disqualifying thing that it's shaped and it has connected bread well I would say I I would never strike me. To say that a sub or a hoagie or a hero is not a sandwich. Oh, that's a great point. A hero ain't nothing but a sandwich. Sure. Mm-hmm. According to young adult literature. Uh, I don't know a, that. That's an old. I don't know that reference. Is that a Goosebumps reference? Or? Before, bef- even before then. Remember how. Party boys? It's like a Thompson Twins era thing, man. It's like, <laughs> I'm older. I'm older. So I'm not, not young like you guys. You're my same exact age. I'm two months older than you. But the, the, finally the thing. <laughs> is that true? Uh, uh, March or June, right? I'm June, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday, old man. Sure. <laughs> You're young at heart. Happy um, birthday to you both. Thanks. So, John, we're oh, talking wait about a minute, your wait book Wait a minute. Hot dogs. <laughs> wait a minute. So the, the wait, you didn't want to explain this again. Well, but now it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so I so said, what? What is the? What is the other trait that hot dog? What? What is? Is there any disqualifying trait that would that a hot dog would have that a sandwich wouldn't, or vice versa? Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, well, yeah, a hoagie, a hero, a sub, grinder, wedge. 
sandwich. They yeah. call those wedges in Buffalo, I believe. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you would cut those in half and share them. Any sandwich, anything that I consider a sandwich, you cut it in half and, sh- and share. You're like, I'll get a <laughs> soup and a half sandwich. That's a thing. You never get soup and a half hot dog. That'd be weird. Would you cut a uh, foot long in half? No. Well, I'm not saying you physically can't. No, no but, that's but a would really you? great point. No, you would never. I would never, ever, 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 ever cut okay. a hot dog I would in need half. Don't you unless just... it's like to appease an extremely not even, not even an extremely picky child, but a child. Do you sure. know what I mean? Right. You just made me physically high. You did something <laughs> in my brain with that yeah. that disqualifier. I Plus, the hot dog bun has that uh, that metal door hinge on the bottom. That well, well that's a hoagie. Same, roll, hoagie, hoagie can too. Yeah, they don't have a metal door hinge. Sure, do they? yeah. All right. A, a sub- metal door hinge? Yeah. That's what the hot dog bun, that's how it fits together, right? Metal? <laughs> yeah. It's got that metal door hinge on the <laughs> that's bottom. That's what happened to your teeth, huh? <laughs> that's what happened. So, Jeez, I was doing a bit, guys. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> I misunderstood. <laughs> sorry. So, I've read this book of yours. This is what, your fifth book? This is my fifth book. Congratulations. It's called Medallion Status. Due out October 15th in hardcover, I believe. You, you In hardcover, also electronic printing. Oh. I have pre-ordered. It's available for pre-order. Yeah, and audiobook also all available uh, on October 15th. And depending on when you hear this, you may either order or pre-order it at bit.ly slash medallion status, all one word, all capital letters. And it'll take you to your – anywhere you buy books, including IndieBound, if you want to connect with your local That's indie, great, independent man. shop. And two L's in medallion these days, right? Two, two L's in medallion. Did I spell it wrong in my mind no. or on my book? No, no. Is that one of the typos you I found in this advanced sure. reader's copy? So they uh, – in this book – it is dripping with nostalgia. Oh, and one of the things you're kind of famous for on our podcast these days is for considering nostalgia to be utterly toxic. A tox- a t- I don't know a, if a you negative, remember coming on our impulse. show last year, a couple of years ago. I remember very much. And n- nostalgia is a toxic impulse is also so how do you has rectify? become a, ma- a, a, a meaningful point of settled law in Judge John Hodgman where people are trying to erase progress mm-hmm. and believe it can be done. And I think that that's a a terrible social movement. And culturally, when we get too fond, over fond of the past and just want to live in it and live in it and live in it, you get a culture where they're making Battlestar Galactica again. Right. No, I I just announced today, you know, they're they're rebooting Battlestar Galactica a third well now a second. Oh I hadn't heard that. Is that right? You gonna be on this one? I I don't know. I'll Were take, you on the well, last just one? Because, just, on the because last I, one. just because I p- believe that it's a piece of uh, toxic nostalgia doesn't mean I don't need a job. <laughs> you know? I had one. I had a bit role. I had a bit role on on the on the two thousand three to two thousand nine Ronald D Moore mm-hmm. David Icke show run Battlestar Galactica and mm-hmm. sci fi. I was in the fourth season mm-hmm. and um, I did not do a good job and it is not worth watching. What was your big line? These pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> It really is a very – I think I was referring to a guy's brain scan uh-huh. and I was a brain doctor, a space right. brain doctor, I should okay, say. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah. Right. And I was like, it really is a very lovely image. All I care <laughs> about is how how crazy – all I care about is how uh, perfectly this bullet got lodged in this <laughs> main character's brain. Right. And his wife, Starbuck, is like freaking out because he can't speak anymore because he's gotten – um, what what he's shot called? in the brain? He's been shot in the brain, <laughs> sure. and it's and it's he's affected got that his syndrome. It's a, what, no, but it, like we call it word salad, but it has a a term a brain a brain injury that causes you to be able to un, aphasia. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's going into aphasic fugue states, and I'm like, yeah, it's called word salad. It happens, but anyway, this is really amazing. I yeah. thought Starbuck <laughs> was the name of the robot in Buck Rogers. 
No, you're talking about Tweaky. Tweaky. Tweaky? Yeah. Maybe you need a little more nostalgia. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll prescribe a little bit for you. I've been avoiding it ever since you came on last time, so I'm like, wow, if it is toxic. uh, I feel bad if you interpreted that as think never think about the I past. I didn't really, John. I was just going through here looking for something, something Some, to hammer you with. Some kind of gotcha journalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that Joshy Sandbag is known for. So uh, this book actually made me laugh out loud multiple times. Thank you very much. Like, I'm glad. Like, I can't remember the last time I read something that made me laugh out loud. Did you not read Vacation Land, my previous book? I actually did not. <laughs> oh, you didn't? No, oh, okay. I haven't read it yet. Oh, well, that's interesting because, yeah, the, this is my fifth book, but the, for, the first three, obviously, mm-hmm. or perhaps not so obviously, were... Compendiums? Were compendiums of fake trivia, mm-hmm. of fake facts. I loved it, yeah. yeah I, loved, I loved making them, although by the third one I was like, I cannot come up with a, a Zeppelin joke anymore. Like, <laughs> like, like this is not what I want to be doing anymore. And uh, by that time, you know, a lot of people were venturing into fake facts as a, as a cultural and political tool, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get away from that, and so you took a long break though between writing those. Yeah, books I did. And yeah, it was, well, it was a couple of years when I was just going up on stage <laughs> in in Brooklyn, just telling whatever stories I could tell to make people engaged and laugh, mm-hmm. ideally, mm-hmm. and then collecting extinct hockey caps from mysterious Gene at the end of the night, and then I finally compiled those. What I, but I was trying to figure out what I still had to say, and, and what I realized about those stories were. They were all true. They weren't dissembling. They weren't arch. They weren't absurdist humor. They were just sort of first-person stories from my life. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in Vacation Land, as I was transitioning um, from one geographical place to another, from Brooklyn, New York, to rural Maine, where we spend a lot of time now, mm-hmm. and from uh, and traveling through a different wilderness of middle age and just sort of adjusting to the fact that I was – the time does move forward and I'm not – I'm not – staying the same age. Well, the book makes it sound like you're adjusting rather well. Well, thank you very much. Well, so medallion status is not, you know, is uh, stories from the same period of time, Mm -hmm. but rather than talking about the time that I spent in the the cold, painful beaches and cold, painful water of Maine, um, back on the road working on various television shows... And all the various weird jobs, because you talk about the Coolidge Corner movie house, I talk about all of the weird jobs that I've always had, mm-hmm. including the weirdest job, you know, that was the most recent one, which was this unexpected experience of being on television and being somewhat famous, and then the experience of sort of losing that job to right. a degree. Yeah. Not completely, just did a just did a two-episode arc on an unnamed television program. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, it's really <laughs> maddening just how little you actually name in here. You don't name drop almost at all. Oh, well, that's true. I guess I guess I don't know why I did that because you could probably figure out all the different shows and you, you people could, that I'm referring to. But it's just if you don't do that, it becomes this kind of ongoing saga. What show is he talking Tell about me. now? I'm here, to, I'm here to unload so all the So you were secrets. killed a couple of times. Yeah. What shows were you killed on? I was killed on um, – I, I just remembered another <laughs> one. That's why I paused mm-hmm. because the, the two that I always remember are the Nick and Blind Spot. But I was also killed on John Glazer's Delocated. But that's a different story. My main deaths right. were on uh, uh, the NBC thriller Blind Spot. Mm-hmm. Did not see that. Uh, well, you're one of few people in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it huge? It's, internationally, it's a huge show. Oh, that's show. great, yeah. man. 
Well, not so great because I got killed. Is it the one where you were a bad FBI agent? I was an evil FBI. Okay. Evil FBI agent who was a meanie to every all the nice people. I also was killed off screen in the Nick, which I was Steven Soderbergh's thing. Um, but the blind the blind spot death was particularly frustrating because the show was was created by a, a friend of mine who had been um, a producer and writer on Bored to Death, which is a mm-hmm. HBO that a show that I was on. One of my faves. Me too, and I really missed that. And yeah. he, everybody Mar- does. Martin created that this new show, which is this thriller that is very smart and and fun. And and uh, it's like a, a bunch of puzzles, and it's visually very distinctive, and and it was a very proud to be. I was very proud to be asked to be a small part of it, mm-hmm. but you know all those things are great. But the really great thing about Blind Spot is, and I'm not sure everyone who watches it around the world appreciates this particularly great thing about Blind Spot, mm-hmm. is that it shoots at Steiner Studios, which is a 20 minute drive from my house. Yes. That's the <laughs> it was the greatest. It was like going, like as a person who has held. Tons and tons of different weird oddball jobs from literary agent to uh, cheesemonger to traffic counter to famous minor television personality to podcaster to whatever. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful itinerant experience where you learn a lot and you get to meet a lot of people. But you're hustling all the time. Hustle, yeah. hustle, hustle. To just drive to my job and park at the studio and then go in. Mm-hmm. And then have a little breakfast. How great was that? And then say my words and make my faces, <laughs> which is what acting is. Mm-hmm. And then drive home like a straight-up dad. Oh, the greatest. Bored to Death was in your neighborhood too, right? Bored to Death shot there a lot. Bored mm-hmm. to Death shot all over the all over Brooklyn, however. Right. But <clears throat> Blind Spot, a lot of it shoots just right in that studio, and it was just this controlled, comfortable environment. And they have snacks for you. Mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> this is I'm ready. Like, I'll do this for the rest of my life. Like, yeah. Take, I'll can- cancel everything else. I'm going to blind spot it till the end. And then Martin goes, did you read the next script? Oh, I'm like, no. no. He's like, oh, you're going to like it. And I did like it because it turned out my character was a monster. Right. But then that monster got put down. Rather than being a monster for years on the show. Sure. I was a monster for a second on the show. And I got, and I, and I got the evil FBI agent got shot dead by the nice, by the niceies. Right. <laughs> And and I was like, I don't want that to happen. And I said to Martin many times, I'm like, is there any – you know, I notice a lot of people who die on this show come back as like a flashback or a hallucination. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, that happens. I'm like, what if what – if, what if I – what if – what if I come back as a hallucination or a flashback? Mm, I don't think that's really going to – I have an idea. How about I come back – as my own twin, except instead of as an evil twin <laughs> plot line, as a good twin. Right. I'm the good twin and I don't – and I, I'm not mean to everybody <laughs> right. and they make me part of the good guy club. And he's like, that will never, never, ever happen. <laughs> but it was the show that sort of started the maxim in my career and I would say to showrunners whenever I would hire, be hired in a guest role or whatever, I'd be like, you got to kill me. You got to kill me in this show because every show – that I that I am killed in becomes mm-hmm. a huge commercial and critical success, and every show that I live in gets canceled. Yeah, and you almost mm-hmm. um, this is a part that you would have gotten killed in, but did not was uh, Breaking Bad. You almost played. Oh yeah, uh, Gabe. Was it Gabe? Which one was Gabe? I, I, I don't. I don't. It was a major character in the second or third season. Yeah. I remember the actor who was cast, David Costabile, or David Costable is how he pronounces his name. I always thought it was Costabile, <laughs> but I ran it. He's an incredible actor, yeah. David Costable. And you've seen him in everything from The Wire to 
uh, to uh, Flight of the Concords. Sure. I think he's on Billions or something now. He's a constantly working actor and entirely appropriately and frankly did a much better job than I could have done in that role. But I had been offered that role. And this is a role of um, Walt's uh, uh, um, assistant after he and Jesse part. Right. Who gets killed. Who, get, who does get killed. Spoiler yeah. for those of you who have right. not watched all of Breaking Bad. And um, and I was afraid to take the job because it meant going and spending a lot of time in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just – it made me scared. Like I'm leaving my family behind and mm-hmm. being in Albuquerque. And it was a terrible mistake for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was a terrible – like, yeah, I should have left my family behind. Right. <laughs> they would have handled it. It would have been an incredible uh, learning opportunity for me. Yeah. <clears throat> and an, ex- an incredible experience. Um, and so it was a, a terrible mistake for me a, and a great outcome for Breaking Bad. But you – Because they got David Costable to do it. And I'm sure – I'm sh- I mean, what he brought to that. And I'm sure his role got much bigger because of what he was doing. Yeah, I'm maybe. sure if I had gotten that role, they would be like, can we kill him sooner? <laughs> like, no. let's, not, let's not draw this out. Let's just have this happen right away. And I saw him uh, at, at uh, a coffee shop in, in New York. Eisenberg's my favorite old-timey coffee shop. Really? And he was there and I just said, I'm, I'm really glad you got that role. He's like, it's actually – it's pronounced Costable, he said. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought it was Costabile. How does it – how is it pronounced on the audio version of Medallion Status? I don't uh, – his – I did not mention his name. I didn't really t- – I only told that story in in reflection in, in Medallion Status. Yeah, because in the book you say um, – like go, just say yes, yeah. which I thought was really – it's a good – it's good advice. Yeah, it – you know, I was asked – the, the the subtitle of the book is True Stories from Secret Rooms because I, I've always been adept even before I was whatever I am famous mm-hmm. of sort of get, getting into getting into rooms that I wasn't necessarily invited into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I loved peering into secret societies of different kinds. And, you know, when you when you're on TV a little bit, you get invited into gifting lounges at the Emmys mm-hmm. and into private parties or whatever. And then I and then but on my own without an and, and I guess because I had a little bit of fame, I also was able to weasel my way into a dinner at Yale University at a secret society there mm-hmm. <laughs> called Book and Snake. Mm-hmm. And the secret societies at Yale University. I went to Yale and Yale's a very old college. Yes. It predates frats. So they had to come up with other systems for young men to hang around each other <laughs> and live together. So they're like – they were still figuring it out. So they're like they, – they had two experiments. One was uh, uh, secret societies, which mm-hmm. are these senior societies of about 15 to 20 seniors, originally all men at the time. You know, but you know, book – Skull and Bones is the most famous one. Book sure. and Snake. Um, uh, Scroll and Key are some of the other ones. And they in- inhabit these, these windowless – these beautiful, what look like old, like beautiful old municipal buildings, mm-hmm. architecturally very significant, built in the 1920s or so, mm-hmm. and often designated landmarks, and they have no windows, and they're just clubhouses for mm-hmm. for seniors. It's like the it's they're, they're like tomb. They're called tombs, and they're you know sort of museums of white privilege that you wander mm-hmm. around in New Haven. And then the other thing, the other idea they came up with was like how, how many acapella 
how many acapella singing groups can we have? 35? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like there's more acapella per, per capita in New Haven than anywhere else on the earth, and no one's doing anything about it. Like, <laughs> it's shutting it down. So I, I had wanted to go into Book and Snake. I, I, this is part of the reason I, I – maybe the reason I applied to Yale because I was fascinated by these right. clubs. And I had gotten invited to go to one um, as a freshman, a party at Book and Snake. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited that I got ruinously drunk. As soon as I was in there, I fell down the stairs, hit my head, woke mm-hmm. up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky that nothing worse happened. Yeah, that's pretty lucky. And – and you could have been an offering that evening. And maybe that was what was supposed to have happened. <laughs> but I escaped. I escaped. Yeah. They found, somehow they found me screaming in New Haven, bloody, wearing, <laughs> wearing nothing but a, but a loincloth and a, and a goat mask. <laughs> I don't know what happened. It was wild. But like all of – and I tried to remember. All I wanted to do was see inside this building. Yeah. And I had, I had been in there. But all of my memory of the inside had been erased. I could not remember what, what had happened. I remember the last thing I remember was walking up to the door. I'm like, boy, these secret societies know their stuff. <laughs> really, you know, I don't erase a mind. <laughs> Just get somebody liquored up and push them down the steps. Uh, well, no, I think I, I think I did it myself. But w- w- when I, got, when I got, got a little bit of renown mm-hmm. and was, would tell this story on stage and it was getting around, I was, con- I was contacted by a couple of – Book and snakes, snakies. Saying, yeah, snakies. I won't say their names. It was a man and a woman. We'll call them Booker and Snakia. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, "Why don't you come to dinner?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I want to come to dinner in this clubhouse." And I went, mm-hmm. and it, it was so weird and exciting too. Yeah. And like, you know, life life doesn't offer perfect circles very often, uh-huh. and. The the image uh, as on the cover of the book by Aaron Draplin of the the logo of Book and Snake is a book and a snake an Ouroboros a snake eating its own tail mm-hmm. so it's like this perf like that's a that's a symbol of mm-hmm. eternity right and also a symbol of the dumbest snake in the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, maybe I like that snake was about to eat my own butt by right. going back in there. but we had a wonderful time and you know they were really nice young young people. Um, there were some older alumni mm-hmm. who had come in. Like there was one guy, James, who's in his early 30s, and he had just told me he had just been appointed uh, public transportation czar for New Haven. <laughs> I'm like, you know, if there are any Alex Jones people out there who are wondering, is is the is the public transportation of uh, some some small Southern Connecticut cities run by secret societies? Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. <laughs> The Illuminati is real. They're <laughs> they're running your public buses in New Haven, and um, it was just we had a fun time. We were hanging out, and at some point, the 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 young people, out of politeness, said, "You know, well, you know, what's the what? What would you say is a secret to your success, mm-hmm. such as it is? You know, and the we answer, can keep secrets. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, the answer was go on television. <laughs> no, right." I mean, the, the the, advi- the advice that I gave them was first of all don't get drunk and fall down the stairs. Mm-hmm. That's Good please advice. don't get drunk and fall down the stairs. Don't you know? Don't think that you're immortal. You know, mm-hmm. don't especially you know white white guys truly don't understand that they're breakable until right until they get older. Yeah. They don't grow up with the sense of m- my body can be harmed or taken at any moment um, by another figure of authority or another person in the mm-hmm. way non-white guys 
feel every day. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, so they do things like jump off cliffs in Hawaii, <laughs> right. climb up mountains and fall downstairs because they think they're immortal. But you're not. You can fall down. You can break your neck and die. So don't do drunk and stay on the stairs. And the other thing is the secret of my success is the same secret for what brought me to the secret society, which is someone invited me to do something and I said yes. Right. And, you know, don't say, you know, if if you're not – if you're invited to do something interesting mm-hmm. – and it's not going to hurt you or somebody else. Right. You should say yes. You should see what happens. That's. I mean, that's so much harder to 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 do sometimes than right. than is is said. But it's it is just at its core good advice. Well, I'm an incredibly smart person. <laughs> right. These kids, uh, these kids, I'm sure have thrived. Right. In my wake, but you know, it's like I I didn't say yes to that job in Albuquerque, and I and I regret it. I could have easily said yes, but. People asking you to do interesting things is also it's it it means sometimes having to leave a job, it means sometimes having to tell someone you care about you're gonna be away for a while. It means just getting a, out of your just comfort a change zone. Change in your yeah. in your what time you wake up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's really easy to come up with a lot of reasons why you would say no, but it's <laughs> it's better to just say yes and, and see what happens. And I haven't I've hardly I've I've certainly failed in that a lot, but Take that, Nancy Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> Just right. say yes. Just say yes. That was gold, Chuck. <laughs> Just say yes. Uh, do you have any tour dates that you want to plug? Yeah. So uh, all, all of my – I'll just preface this by saying all of my tour dates uh, are available at johnhodgman.com slash tour. Beautiful. Uh, the medallion status tour uh, is going to be taking me to famous John Hodgman stomping grounds like Brookline, Massachusetts. Sure. Symphony Space, where I'll be talking with our friend Elizabeth Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Los Angeles, where I'll be talking with our friend Amy Mann. Oh, cool. Uh, San Francisco, where I'll be talking with uh, my friends, Linus the Corgi and Chompers the Corgi, two famous oh, corgis really? of Instagram, <laughs> uh, who figure prominently in this book. Yeah. They are two famous corgis they're of Instagram. They're even on the cover here. Yeah, they're on the cover. Look, I want the book to sell. Right. You know what I mean? And I put Dogs. Two, two, two corgis on the cover. I'm guaranteed a 10% bump in Easily. sales. Yeah. <laughs> But when I one of the stories I talked, one of the secret rooms that I got into was a, a party at um, a, during San Francisco Sketch Fest at Adam Savage's uh, oh, yeah. workshop, the MythBusters. Adam Savage plows all of his MythBusters money into mm-hmm. his deep, uh, deep and rewarding hobby of prop replication. Mm-hmm. Have you been to his workshop? I have not. We should we should go there sometime. I would love That's to. Inc- it sounds amazing. Like he just he makes things from the movies, so he'll make. Right. A perfect replica of Tom Skerritt's spa- spacesuit from Alien, mm-hmm. or that Blade Runner gun. Yeah, he's made this making making Harrison Ford's blaster from Blade Runner has been this lifelong yeah. pursuit that he's perfected and perfected. I mean, he, he's he's made I think six for other people and six more for himself or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like just in case it goes uh, down. And there's a and there. <laughs> oh, do they actually function? No, no, oh, okay. no, they don't. They're, and he's got he's got like a Han Solo and Carbonite hanging up in there, and he's got a full size Admiral Akbar. Yeah. That Admiral Akbar is dressed at dressed up in. Uh, a, a, a Napoleonic War era naval uniform. Yeah, that is a perfect replica of Master and Com- uh, uh, Russell Crowe's costume oh, yeah. and Master and Commander. I just thought that was right. a nice touch. And there I was in this party, enjoying this exclusive invitation only party with all these other comedians, enjoying just watching and enjoying nerd minds exploding. And, and I see these two dogs in there, and I'm turned to Kevin Murphy. I'm like, who? 
who invited the people with the dogs? And he goes, oh, the people weren't invited. The dogs were invited. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, that's Linus the Corgi and Chompers the Corgi, two <laughs> famous corgis of Instagram. <laughs> My friend Connor Lestoka is a huge fan of theirs. <laughs> and he invited them to the party. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I just... I just performed comedy right. on stage uh-huh. in English that I speak <laughs> on two legs, not four, right. and I can sweat all over my body. I don't <laughs> have to just have to pant. <laughs> and these guys are getting invited to my exclusive party because they're dogs. They probably don't even know what planet Admiral Akbar is from. <laughs> the answer is Mon Calamari. There you go, dogs. <laughs> <laughs> is it really Mon Calamari? Mon Calamari. It's a dumb, terrible, dumb Star it's Wars joke. Bad. Yeah, it's terrible. So anyway, yeah, Linus and Chompers are going to be there in San Francisco. We're nice. Gonna, we're going to find. We've become friends now. Good. And basically, I'm dra- I'm uh, I'm I'm draft I'm ba- back drafting them. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to ba- you don't want to backdraft a dog too closely, but yeah, I am. No, no, no. I'm Especially corgis that don't have tails. Yeah, exactly. So you can get yeah. pretty close. And then, uh, and then we're, I'll be in Minnesota and Chicago. And then in November, we're going to hit a, a bunch of other cities, um, Jesse Thorne and I, as a Judge John Hodgman tour. Fantastic. Oh, you're coming here to Atlanta. Coming here to Atlanta, the variety. Looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be a, a lot of fun. Um, Washington, D.C., Toronto, Portland, Maine. Yeah. And Durham, North Carolina. So, and all of those, those will be Judge John Hodgman shows, but right. medallion status will be available for purchase and whether it's a Judge Sean Hodgman show or a medallion status event, I'll be hanging around signing everything, oh, that's hanging nice. out or whatever. Yeah, and you're big at that. I will say, you know, I, I will say this again, bit.ly slash medallion status. Mm-hmm. Sorry, in this in this crowded culture, you got to hashtag always be plugging. Sure. That link is the pre-order link. Um, and I, I, I ask people to consider buying it that way because – Getting a rush of pre-orders right at the top is really, really helpful to the launch of the book. I'll bet. But I don't want to punish people who have pre-ordered and then come <laughs> to the book and then come to the book tour. Right. Because some of these events, not all of them, you have to buy a book to get in. So what if you've oh, already bought you. one, right? Yeah, sure. And then you gotta buy another one to come in and see me, you're gonna blow me off or feel like a jerk. Is there like a coupon they can print out? We give them a little treat, aren't you? I give them a little treat. Okay. Everyone who comes and gets a book on the book tour or the Judge John Hodgman tour. Uh-huh. It's an Aaron Draplin-designed enamel lapel pin uh-huh. that has a picture of a corgi on it, <laughs> and it says, Famous Corgi. Nice. Hang on a second. Okay, it keeps going. Pretty nice, right? Right. <laughs> what if you pre-ordered the book as a hardcover, as an e-book, mm-hmm. as an audio book, mm-hmm. and then you get a copy of the book at the event? Mm-hmm. You, get a, you get an upgrade. You get a new pin. <laughs> Does it have a $20 bill that it's stuck into? No. <laughs> <laughs> But this is only for people who buy two copies of the book and can show me in the in the signing line that they've got two copies of the book in any format uh-huh. for whatever reason. Sure. Double corgi. Oh, jeez. Double corgi. Yeah. This is all two. about medallion status. This is all about upgrade systems, sure. loyalty systems. I've got two of all your books because I always buy one and then you always give me one. Yeah. Well, certain there are there are even even higher levels. Yeah. <laughs> of status that you can achieve. Awesome. And and you both have earned for your for your very for your long term kindness to me mm-hmm. and excellence to everyone, mm-hmm. you both get a triple corgi elite badge. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh man! And there is there are triple corgi elite badges. And wow! Uh, when I was suggesting this scheme to the publisher, uh-huh. I had a ver- I had a criteria for or a criterion for triple corgi elite that I have now forgotten. <laughs> so I think it's just going to be a little bit a little bit. Uh, 
fuzzy. Discretionary. Okay. Yeah, discretionary. I think yeah. that's good, though. You yeah. should be able to be discretionary. And the Triple Corgate Elite badge is, is in. It's all, they're all beautiful enamel pins designed by Aaron Draplin, your I friend. can't wait to get mine. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, think I, have, I think I have one for you in my bag. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Well, John, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for being here. JohnHodgman.com uh-huh. slash tour, bit.ly slash medallion status. Uh-huh. You want my newsletter? It's bit.ly slash Hodgmail, H-O-D-G-M-A-I-L. That's it's great. a very fun newsletter. Yeah, it really is. Hey, thanks. Medallion status is all capital letters, all one word. When bit.ly medallion status, bit.ly slash Hodgmail, it's all small letters, all one word. Because why be consistent? Also, check out my new every now and then midday Instagram live show, Get Your Pets, <laughs> where I interview dogs and cats on Instagram. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, John, anytime. We can do this every week if you want. I Okay. Okay. I would love to. You come down, we'll put you on. Why don't you come on the Judge John Hodgman podcast, too? I've been on before. I know. Let's do it again. Okay. Cross the streams. All right. Got to do something to fight against these doughboys. Okay. <laughs> you got it. All right. Uh, well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with Hodgman. What's your website one more time? This is the home of John Hodgman? JohnHodgman.com. Okay. At Hodgman on Twitter. Uh-huh. At John Hodgman on Instagram. Okay. There are Facebook group pages for Judge John sure. Hodgman and stuff like that. Yeah, we don't care about this. And, um, yeah, bit.ly slash medallion status. Okay, and then for us, you can just go to stuffyoushouldknow.com and find all of our social links on there. It's oh, way so easier. Simple. Yeah. So simple. <laughs> or you can email us. You can wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.